2: You had a really an unprecedented run of, of of success with the Mets, with the Knicks, and with the Jets. With these new teams, these new order teams, the, the establishment teams, the Giants and the Yankees were uh, were in the cellar, uh, and so you had these new teams. and And I do think that it, that you had the. Uh, opportunity or, or the situation where things could have gotten ugly at times in new york city and i think sports is one of the reasons that it didn't you know i think that that a lot of the things that happened uh uh in other cities sports was part of the reason that that, that they didn't happen in new
1: york welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave ziron This week, we speak to author and journalist Sean Devaney about his book, Fun City, John Lindsay, Joe Namath, and How Sports Saved New York in the 1960s. It's a great read. I can't wait to talk to him. Also, I've got some choice words about the morality of watching football, given what we know about the game. I also got a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award that I'm very happy to lay out this week, particularly that Just Stand Up Award um, because it's very Baltimore-based, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, also, we got Colin Kaepernick and about all the teams that chose to tank their year rather than sign the quarterback and much more. But first, let's talk to Sean Devaney. So... Sean, first things first, uh, I did a little research on you, a little deep dive, a little deep state research on you. And um, you're you're not a New Yorker. Uh, You live out in Illinois. But this is your second book that weaves together sports and politics in New York City. What is it about New York City that's proven to be a magnet for you to put in the amount of work that's gone into these books?
2: Well, you know, I th- I think that uh, when you're talking about sports and and, and, and politics, uh, the 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 connections that wind up coming up to me uh, generally start in New York and 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 you know emanate from there. Uh, so you know, with Fun City, uh, you had. Uh, uh you had uh a, a new mayor coming in John Lindsay in 1965 you had Joe Namath coming in in 1965 and that just seemed like a natural story to me uh with with the city sort of as the backdrop and and and, and what a perfect backdrop uh both for those guys but also for uh, the 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 events that unfolded. So you know, I think New York City has 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 that uh, uh, that status as as sort of the place where this stuff originates and then sort of spreads out uh, to the rest of the country from there.
1: See what surprises me is I of course agree with you because I grew up in New York City and so all of my sports politics <laughs> uh, knowledge <laughs> is sort of rooted in that. But usually my experience is that when people are from outside the city or don't live in the city, they almost resent New York in a counterintuitive way. Almost like New York, well, let me tell you about Chicago sports and politics. Let me tell you about Massachusetts sports and politics.
2: Yeah, you know it, it is. I, I've done two books that, that 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 sort of do that with Chicago. One was the, uh, uh, you know, the building of of Wrigley Field in, in 1914, and and sort of everything that went into that. Uh, and 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 there was certainly uh, you know both both baseball politics involved in and, and politics in general involved. Uh, and also the 1918 World Series, which uh, uh, you know was done against the backdrop of of, of World War One, uh, but it involved both Boston uh, and Chicago. So I you know. I'd Branched out, uh, branched out here and there, but but I I I, I still do think that, uh, uh, that 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 you know New York is sort of uh, um, put it this way. When, when I wrote the books uh, about Chicago, uh, I would still say about 25 percent of the action takes place in New York because that's you know that's where all the meetings were, that's where the hotels were, where they all met and 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 had all these consequential meetings. So uh, yeah, you know I, you really can't avoid it.
1: Okay, so there are 8 million stories in the Naked City. Uh, What grabbed you about this one, this intersection of John Lindsay, Joe Namath, and New York City in the late 60s?
2: Well, you know, for one thing, uh, I, I had known a little bit about John Lindsay before I really dove into the project. Uh, but I, I I found that I didn't know nearly as much as I should. Uh, he is a, a, a political character who has sort of been lost to history, very much so. uh, and, and 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 was uh, you know at the time very much a a, a critical not only in, in in New York City but 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 a national figure. He was a national mayor uh, at a time where where you know New York didn't really wasn't really known for that. You know that's that's sort of been the job since John Lindsay, but under Robert Wagner. Or before him, that was not really the case. Uh, it was very much a, uh, uh, you, you were the head bureaucrat. John Lindsay really changed that. Uh, and, and and the more I, I, I discovered about about him and about that uh, the more I wanted to write about it and, and and I thought it was this great coincidence that that just as he was coming into this to, to, to that role in the city uh, that you had Joe Namath as well and, and and it really did seem like these two guys uh, they were just so different they were so different than, than, than what had been there before uh, that I thought that uh, uh, the connection between them even though it's not like they were pals or anything, like that. Uh, but but the connection of what they represented, uh, both in the sports world and the political world, I thought that that was uh, something uh, unmistakable and 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 something that would be fun to explore.
1: Uh, and it works. And I want to say I really did love the book. Um, oh, great. I really did. Uh, but one big difference, though, between Namath and Lindsay, and I'm going to ask you more about Joe Namath, is that Joe Namath is still iconic. Uh, Mayor yeah. John Lindsay extremely forgotten. I'm guessing people listening to us right now are like, oh yeah, Joe Namath, uh, John Lindsay. And is that just because he's a liberal Republican and that doesn't really exist anymore as a kind of species? So there's no political party or apparatus to celebrate him? Is it because you think that his mayoral run was seen as um, a failed experiment? Is it because he passed away young? I mean, why do you think John Lindsay has sort of been forgotten to history?
2: He didn't win.
1: You know, and I think that's
2: the difference. What, what, what separates Joe Namath, and look, if Joe Namath hadn't won, the, the, the Super Bowl in 1969, uh, he, he'd be a pretty forgotten character as well. You know, he, he would he not more have. More
1: interceptions than touchdowns. In yeah, his career.
2: exactly. And, and and you know, as great as he was in college, he was never quite what he was supposed to be in the NFL. Thanks, thanks in large part to the knee. But, but, you know, the facts are the facts. He, he was never, he was not around very long. He was not very productive. Did not have a whole lot of playoff success outside of that Super Bowl. So Joe Namath won. And, and because of that, he becomes this icon. John Lindsay never won. He, he, he was a two-term mayor uh, of, of New York City. Uh, he had all these big ideas. He had all these, you know, he, he really had uh, great plans for change, uh, but was really worn down by sort of the bureaucracy uh, and, and, and just the day-to-day job of being mayor that he could never really get uh, his, his full vision uh, implemented. And then, of course, it was the fiscal crisis that hit just after him, and he took a lot of blame for that uh, in New York City. So I think that that's why he's he, he sort of uh, uh, left off, that, that, that you just don't remember him uh, as being uh, as having the kind of impact that he actually did have. And, and if you look at what he wanted to do and, and what he was trying to do with the city, and you look at where the city is now, a lot of where, uh, of the good things about New York now uh whether it's uh you know the use of park spaces, open spaces, things like that, uh bicycles, he was very big on that. Uh, you know, all that, that 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 really began with John Lindsay. He doesn't get much credit for it, uh, but like I say, he 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 never had that big win. And and I think because of that, we forget him and we remember
1: Joe Namath. So I'm all curious about Joe Namath, because you hear Joe Namath, if we played word association uh it would be Super Bowl three, Playboy, maybe the pana uh you know, a Playboy, I should say. Um yes. maybe the Pantyhose commercials. Yeah. Um, but you know, so so it it all feels, you know, kind of superficial. I mean, he's iconic, but no one would ever speak about him in terms of like the sixties athletes we associate with great substance, like from Muhammad Ali to Billy Jean King, etc. But you did such a deep dive into Namath. I'm curious. What you learned about him or his character that surprised you in the course of writing this book, or made him a, a deeper figure to you when writing this book? Well, you
2: know he he was very willingly superficial that, that's and, and, and he would uh, when he was talking to the press and, and when he was uh, doing magazine interviews and things like that he he really relished. That uh, that perception, you know, he had a quote where, uh, you you know, he said, uh, uh, booze and girls, that's 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 pretty much all I need. Uh, And and, and that was sort of the way he guided himself. Uh, But at the same time, you know, he he had more depth than 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 he let on. Uh, certainly, in terms of race, uh, he was. Uh, al- although he was not somebody out there um, speaking or 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 you know really acting in a way that uh, uh, that that made him a leader on that issue. Uh, if you talk to Jets now, or or if you talk to Jets at that time, or or folks who were covering the team, uh, they'll they'll tell you that that he was really important at a time where a lot of NFL teams were being torn apart by that. You know, the the St. Louis Cardinals, for instance, had a, a uh, you know, they had a heck of a time dealing with racial issues. Uh, and a lot of that came down to Joe Namath, you know, simple things like uh, at training camp, going and, and, and sitting and and having his lunch uh, with a group of black players, you know, the, the, the tables would automatically segregate uh, at, at training camp. And, and Joe just, it just never, it never struck him that that's how it should be. So he would just go and sit with the black players. He didn't do it as 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 a conscious thing, it was just who he was and, and and you know that that i think uh uh is something that I found out about him that uh uh that that, that you wouldn't really know just by you know looking at the uh the, the him in a fur coat you know, you know that sort of thing that's a, he he did have uh sort of uh uh, really, an open spirit that uh, uh, that uh, that 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 really gets lost uh, uh, when when people think about him or talk about him.
1: It's really interesting because you speak about him being uh, consciously superficial, and this and yet he has these two points of background, which could not be less superficial given the times. Whether you're talking about the deindustrializing uh, near Appalachia part of Pennsylvania, and then he's in frickin' Alabama. In the 1960s, I mean it's hard to get more uh, authentic than that, and it's hard to think of a more authentic sort of jumping off point than that, and so it's fascinating to me that he jumped off from that into this almost like the refuge of celebrity and superficiality.
2: Yeah, that's, and that's right, because, you know, he, he had a tough upbringing, no question. Uh, I think uh, uh, he had a lot of support and love from his family, but, uh, uh, you know, his parents were split, and, and, and he, you know, had a hard time sort of uh, uh, defining himself except as an athlete. That was the only thing that, that really uh, set him apart. So I think when he left Pennsylvania, he winds up going down to Alabama. I think it really uh, uh, did open his eyes as to, as to how things were in the rest of the country, certainly in the South uh but at the same time like i said he he was still he, he didn't have himself figured out you know i i think he had a very good sense of 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 what was right and what was wrong uh but you know he goes down to alabama and you know, within a, a couple months, he's speaking with the southern drawl. You know, that's it, 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 it's like he, he wanted so badly to fit in, uh, but but at the same time, he never did lose that sense of uh uh you know you know what what, what he saw racially when he saw uh for instance he was there when when Alabama uh, when the University of Alabama was integrated uh, and he saw uh, how Ms. Malone was was treated. Uh, you know, he he was he was very put off by that and 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 really was uh, very much against that uh and they actually wound up becoming friends
1: wow yeah that, that that's the part of it that gets so much deeper so i've be, i've beat around the bush i've beat around the bush long enough sean uh yep. you say fun city john Lindsay, joe namath how sports saved new york in the 1960s how did sports save new york
2: well i think it i think it uh, at least put off Disaster is, is is what I would say. I, I think it put off disaster uh, and, uh, until the seventies, and and we we saw what happened with the seventies and the fiscal crisis, and uh, and uh, you know Gerald Ford saying to, uh, drop dead to the city, you know, as the the famous headline said. So I think what 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 sports was able to do uh, was to to at least take a situation where New York City. Uh, was at times, uh, you, you know, like every city uh, in in the country at the time, uh, was able to to take New York City and and and, and sort of ease some of those tensions. Uh, you had really an unprecedented run of of, of success with the Mets, uh, with uh, with the Knicks, uh, and with the Jets. Uh, with with these new teams, you know these 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 new order teams, the, the establishment teams, the Giants and the uh, and the uh, Yankees were uh, were in the cellar, uh, and so you had these new teams, and and I do think that it that 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 you had the. Uh, Opportunity or or the situation where things could have gotten ugly at times in New York City. I think sports is one of the reasons that it didn't. You know, I think that that a lot of the things that happened uh, uh, in other cities, sports was part of the reason that 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 they didn't happen in New York.
1: All right. So here's a tough question, and it might might, um, be even a little bit broader uh, and philosophical. But but I feel like it it is important because as you said, things eventually did blow up in the '70s. So you're talking about. The delaying of the inevitable. Um, is there a negative that you've saw in this uh, late '60s upsurge in New York, where the three main men's teams they all win championships um, in '69 or '69 seventy? But is there, as you were working on this story, is there a bread and circus argument that you know manufacturing is leaving the city? There's all this uh, racial unrest, police brutality. Sports brings people together, but it's a little bit bread and circuses because it's papering over very real problems.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't think that there's any question about that. Uh, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, one, one question that I get asked too is, 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 you know, how much, how much is John Lindsay at fault for what happened? And and certainly he took the brunt of the blame because the fiscal crisis hit right after I, you know, the social aspects, uh, the the demographic aspects Uh, The business aspects, everything that was going on in New York City, you mentioned manufacturing was leaving and and there was nothing that was bringing those jobs back. Uh, You had really a a huge move out to the to the suburbs uh, and those people weren't coming back. You had migration from the south where where you had a lot of poor minorities coming uh, looking for work and and those jobs were gone. Uh, So all those factors weren't going to change whether it was sports or John Lindsay or, or, or anything. The, the, that was all going to come to a head eventually, uh, and it did. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 when you look at what, what happened in the late 60s, uh, you know New York didn't explode the way other cities uh, did and and I wouldn't say look it wasn't just sports that that made that happen, of course not uh but but you know I think that that, that certainly Lindsay was a factor in that uh, and certainly uh, uh, the sports at least played a part uh in, uh, uh in 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 tempering uh the things that happened uh, in other cities and and keeping it from happening in new york
1: so you've got these three iconic teams. And this, this would also be a great bar discussion for those yep. of us who are steeped in New York sports. I mean, just to say their names is just wild to me. You know, like the Namath Jets, uh, the Amazing Mets, and the Knicks teams of DeBusher, Bradley, Frazier, Reed, Dick Barnett, I mean, that that you know are often held up as the epitome of the most beautiful kind of team basketball. So much iconic, uh, so much... So many iconic figures at play, moving around here. Which of those three spectacles—Namath Jets, Amazing Mets, uh, the Fraser Knicks—which of those three spectacles do you think brought the city together the most politically, socially, and culturally?
2: Uh, probably the Mets. I, you know, I mean, just that—that—that was so improbable. Um, you know they had been uh, just such a terrible team, and willingly so. I mean, they came in uh, in 1962, and and they lose 100 games. And you've got Casey Stengel saying, uh, uh, you know, can anybody here uh, play this game? And, and 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 you know they have sort of a um, that the, the, they willingly play the lovable losers. Uh, and 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 by 1969, they they kind of get tired of that, and, and and they start to improve, and they start to find some uh, so, some young players like. a Tom Seaver, um, uh, and Jerry Holtzman, who, who who can start to turn their fortunes around. Uh, and, and as they did that, uh, I think that the whole city really did get caught up in it. Uh, and you can make the case and, 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 and uh, the uh, campaign director for for John Lindsay uh, will, will tell you this uh, that uh, that Lindsay kind of glomming on to the Mets, uh, in that stretch in October, uh, just ahead of that 1969 election, uh, that, that, that was key for him uh, in terms of winning in 1969 after he had lost the, uh, uh, the nomination uh, on the Republican side and, and had to kind of scramble just to, just to keep himself afloat in that race. Uh, if, 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 if that hadn't happened, if Mario Procaccino, who was his uh, uh, Democratic rival and, and 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 was the guy who probably would have been mayor, who was uh, a pretty nasty man to be honest, you know, if you if you look at his history and the things he said, very uh, quote unquote law and order, and and I think everybody knows what that's uh, you know sort of a dog whistle for. Uh, he he could have been mayor in in 1969, and I think that would have been a disaster. So you could say, look, the Mets. Helped John Lindsay get elected, uh, and also helped Mario Procaccino from getting elected, uh, and that was a good thing for New York City. Uh, not that Lindsay, uh, you, you know, completely rescued uh, uh, the situation, but I think Procaccino would have been a disaster. So I would say the Mets, uh, uh, when you when you put all that together, probably had the biggest impact.
1: Mm, but especially in. Um tight-knit highly centralized urban politics it's a great case study in how sports can ricochet into like a mayoral race in a way that you don't see in statewide races or um or, or a presidential race
2: right especially with an incumbent like that and 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 you look around and and so many things had gone poorly for Lindsay. There was a school strike uh that was that was really racially charged uh there there had been a disaster in terms of how they handled the uh snow removal uh in a uh, in a uh, a blizzard a surprise blizzard the previous winter uh you know th- things had just gone terribly for Lindsay the previous year uh and and so if you're living in New York you're ready to get rid of the bum, you know? You're ready to uh, let, I don't care who it is, let's just get somebody different, and then, you know, The team starts winning and and it kind of pulls everybody's watching the games and and you get sort of this camaraderie and then you say, well, things aren't so bad here. And then you go in and you vote for mayor and you say, well, all right, I'll stick with the guy who uh, uh, who's already here because uh, uh, because maybe things aren't so bad. I think you can make a, a pretty good case that 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 put him over the edge. He did not win by much. Uh, and if he just had a few percentage points that came from uh, uh, from the way he glommed on to the Mets, uh, then, uh, th- then that might have been enough for him.
1: So we're living in an era now, 2017, um, so defined by things like, of course, like, like the reaction of Donald Trump, the, uh, the presence of politics and sports in this, we could call it Kaepernick era, even if it predates Kaepernick by several years. Um, the politicization of the NBA, so different from the 1990s, mm-hmm. all of these different factors now, um, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement, which um, you know, reflects and connects to so much of what was happening in the 60s. Um, so what lessons do you think are useful um, from Fun City to help us navigate things today? It, you know, that's a, it's a good question because I, I – I... The the thing
2: that the the more you look into Lindsey and 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 you read about him and, and and you see what his like I said what his vision was, uh, the more you you you'd, you'd probably compare him uh, to Obama and 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 see that he was a guy who came in with with sort of these high ideals and thought so I'll get into government.
1: Remember that like Obama in 2008 right. That's counterposed right. to McCain. This idea of being fresh and new.
2: Yeah, right. Murray Kempton wrote that about Lindsay, that that he is fresh and everyone else is tired. Uh and and, and- you know you, you get in you get into the office and you realize that that there is this giant iceberg of bureaucracy uh and there's there's all these forces pushing against you uh and 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 you realize that that what you've got to do is 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 get your hands dirty with actually legislating and and uh and and, and, and you know you can't just preach the high ideals you have to be able to to get things done uh and and what happened after Lindsay uh, was sort of a reaction that we've seen what happened after Obama, and and you had a beam come in and uh, and it was a disaster, and you have Trump come in and, and, and it's been a disaster. I think that that uh, you know as far as lessons go, uh, I think uh, New York City survived. You know, I mean that that that's that's the way I would look at it. Is is that. Uh, you know, Lindsey wasn't able to do the things he wanted to do, uh, and and there was a a, a reaction with uh, uh, just an incompetent mayor after him, uh, and uh, when still New York survived, and and so I I think you could say uh, you know you had Obama, and and he wasn't able to do a lot of the things he wanted to do with this country, uh, and and then you have I think I could say uh, an incompetent person that followed him. Uh, but, but we're going to survive you know i mean it's 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 you're going to find a way through and, and 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 there'll be something that comes after
1: it's so interesting that you call trump incompetent and maybe a month ago I would get a ton of reaction from people maybe in the Twitter sphere like how dare you speak that way and now we could just be like what Sean's just basically quoting the secretary of state the secretary of <laughs> treasury <laughs> this former advisor everybody who speaks off the record to every journalist in DC but but other than that Sean's really out there on a limb <laughs> I mean it's wild how this is unraveling as we're doing this it, it right
2: really now. is it really is and 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 like and that's what I tell myself all the time dave is is just there'll be something after, you know, and we're going to get through and there'll be something after
1: this too shall pass. Um, and, and I also, I have to tell you, Sean, as, as we start to wrap this up, um, just a little, little thing is I wanted you to know that you are the first sports columnist I ever emailed in my life. And Is that right? this had a huge effect on me. I'm just putting this out there because I'm, I'm saying this more for my producers here who are young and they don't know <laughs> what this felt like before Twitter and social media. But you right. were like I read you all the time because I'm a basketball junkie and I read you on Yahoo Sports and you were like the first person who I saw who would stick your email at the bottom of the column. And it was just like, write me back about what I wrote or whatever. And I remember, like, this was like a huge deal for me. It was like, I am going to write an email to a journalist and talk back to them. <laughs> and I wrote to you, and you wrote me back. And I remember it was like, I thought that was just like the coolest freaking thing in the world. Like, now it's like, you know, you tweet the president, and he tweets you back. You know, but this was like right, right. so different, this idea no. of like there being a dialogue. And that that just had a huge – formative effect on me so i just wanted to thank well, I'm you glad, for that I,
2: I, i'm glad i'm glad to know that and and i do miss that actually because i do feel like uh, you know, I, I feel like Twitter. You don't get the kind of interaction that you can get in terms of sitting down and and reading what you've written to me and 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 thinking about it. And you know, maybe I was wrong on something and saying, "Hey, you know what? You're right." Uh, and and you know, I, I I would have no problem doing that. But uh, yeah, you know, that's uh, I'm I'm glad to know that. Thank you for telling me that that, that made my day.
1: <laughs> no, I'm I'm sure I wrote something to you like, "How dare you say the Spurs will beat the Knicks in the NBA finals?" Or some, but, but the bigger issue was like that it was a a long considered email. And maybe if that was today, I would have been like, Hey, Sean, you suck. Right. Exactly. <laughs> just, exactly. You know, there, there wouldn't be this memory attached to it. You know what I'm saying? Right.
2: Right. E- ease of communication doesn't, doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, translate into quality of communication. <laughs> right.
1: Or, or, just, or weight, you know, like the sort of thing right. you remember. And, um, and so my, my last question for you then, cause I asked this of all our guests is, Um, You know, you've written these terrific books. Um, I loved Fun City. I now want to crack the book you wrote about New York City in the 1980s and sports, which just looks so up my alley. It's absurd because that's, you know, when I was growing up and so it's like so zeroed into that time. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to ask, like, when you write, what kind of music do you listen to, either to unwind afterwards or maybe music that you listen to uh, while you work out to get ready to write or music that you listen to to write like well what's what's your go-to music
2: all right this is going to be embarrassing but I'll be honest Uh, when I write I listen to Enya (laughs) I don't listen to. and and Dave I'm saying I'm saying this to you I don't listen to Enya. We're not cutting this, Sean. We're not cutting this. That's fine. That's fine. I'll own it. I'll own it. (laughs) I don't listen to Enya in any other aspect of my life, but I will sit there and listen to Orinoco Flow like fifteen times in a row because it's just like it's just it's like elevated music. this in the back of my head and, I, and when it's there i can just focus i don't know what it is uh there have been times where i've had my headphones on in the press box like at uh, gillette stadium or uh or uh, you know at wrigley field or whatever and you know it, it's a little too loud and the guy next to me can hear it and i can see him kind of looking over at me like are you listening to anya <laughs> yes i am listening to anya i don't know what it is but I, I will talk to it that's what i listen to it right i don't listen to anya in any other like in any other facet of my life but for whatever reason, she just does it for me when I'm writing. Oh,
1: my God. I, I, I am not a Velvet Underground aficionado. I know next to nothing about Velvet Underground. But for some reason, I listen to the live Velvet Underground double album on repeat when I write. It's well, There you go. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Sean, so uh, thank you for that. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and and thank you so much for your time. The book is Fun City, John Lindsay, Joe Namath, and How Sports Saved New York in the nineteen sixties. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you, Dave. And now I've got some choice words about the ethics of watching football. In 2017 Okay look LeBron James In addition to being a superstar High school basketball player back in his day Was also an all statewide receiver Back in Akron he, And that's a big deal That's Ohio for goodness sakes uh, He's often spoken about his love for football But LeBron's own two sons Do not play the game And when LeBron was asked why This is what he said And I quote I needed a way out my kids don't need a way out. That's my excuse. end quote. Now, I hear similar lines like that from NFL players all the time. words to the effect of "I play so my kid doesn't have to play. These days, I'm working on this book with Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett called "Things that Make White People Uncomfortable. And his thoughts on the subject certainly match the title. Now, Michael has three daughters. But he says, like, if he had a son, there's no way he'd want him to play in the NFL. He said to me, trying to become a pro football player creates its own version of PTSD. It's like no other sport, because whether it's the CTE or an addiction to the violence, I just know too many people who leave the game and get so depressed or so confused because they don't know who they are when it's all done. It'll make you cry to see some of these former players behind closed doors, and I don't know any other sport that does that, end quote. Uh, Michael's right. You know, science is not football's friend. He mentioned CTE, that's chronic traumatic encephalopathy, a degenerative brain disease that comes out of playing the sport. We see more players retiring early, more players speaking openly about their fears of not being able to remember their loved ones or wondering whether in the near future if they'll be too weak or addled to pick up their children. There's this famous decades-old quote from a boxer named Buster Mathis who said, Don't box, play football, because nobody plays boxing, but now we know that nobody plays football either. Researchers at Boston University now say that they are close to developing the ability to test CTE in living players instead of having to wait for an autopsy to do it. That is a game changer, and it could change the trickle of athletes retiring young out of these existential fears of future brain damage into a flood. So does that mean that it's not moral? To watch a ceaselessly brutal sport that is 70% black but has no black ownership? This is a worthwhile question, but to leave it at the above also paints an incomplete picture of what professional football is. It removes the question of labor. Pro football players are not just victims of this system any more than any of us who have to work for a living are victims. They're also union workers, the only sports union that's part of the AFL-CIO. They are people who fight collectively for better safety standards, fair pay, and also do so on the highest possible stage. In a country whose media doesn't cover labor issues, sports unions are in many respects our best tool in arguing with people about the importance of solidarity. Not to mention that these players' associations, unlike a lot of unions, have supported initiatives against racism, sexism, and homophobia. We also have to be honest that this is dangerous labor that players enter willingly. Many are driven, unlike LeBron's kids, down that path by poverty, but that also describes most working-class jobs— under capitalism, dangerous and dirty work that would not exist in a world where people had the true ability to choose their life's pursuits without economic coercion. Consider coal mining. In a better world, we would want to see that abolished. It's dirty, dangerous, and inefficient. Now Donald Trump loosened regulations and already twice as many coal miners died in 2017 as opposed to the previous year. Short of a world where a dangerous idiot isn't president and we're all in solar wind mobiles, we should, I think, be on the front lines fighting alongside coal miners for the best possible safety standards, wages, and health care. Similarly, in football, no players are asking to be saved from their sport. They may not want their own children to play, but they don't want their own jobs abolished either. Most just want to work and get out in one piece. Most fans just want to watch, forget their troubles for three hours, and then go back to the grind. As to whether it's okay for an individual to watch, that is an individual choice. I, for example, don't watch college football because there are no salaries, no union, and it feels like raw indentured servitude. I have no illusions that I'm making a difference by not watching, but it's my choice and I'm happy to share why with whoever wants to ask. Similarly, there were calls this year to boycott the NFL because of the collusion by owners to keep Colin Kaepernick off a roster. Those calls for a boycott should be heeded if people want to show solidarity with a social justice-minded quarterback, but we should also be careful to note that neither Kaepernick nor his many allies among NFL players called for a similar boycott. Imposing boycotts from the outside, which we can call savior politics, is not how this important political tool can or should work. They should be done in solidarity with people on the inside who are actually calling for boycotts. Now, if people feel disgusted by the spectacle of brain damage for entertainment, they shouldn't watch. If they want to argue that point with others, they should do so proudly. But we should also recognize that all cultural commodities are distorted, and to focus on one without a broader view of the world is short-sighted and can easily stray into patronizing hypocrisy when telling people what they should or should not find to be acceptable entertainment. You know, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, So far about morals, I know only that what is moral is what you feel good about after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. Lately, the more I watch this sport, the more I get to know these players, the more I'm feeling bad after. And I don't know how much longer I can watch precisely because I've been working with Michael Bennett and seeing his own pain and meeting his teammates, and that makes disassociating from the violence far more difficult. So is it okay to watch football? I'm not sure if these kinds of questions even matter in a world built on a foundation of such stark immorality. When communities like Belle Glade, Florida, whose unemployment rate is around 40%, suffer in poverty, and are just a one hour drive from Mar-a-Lago It seems like we have a great deal of unfinished business before we get to football. And given how many NFL players come from Belle Glade, Florida, I'm guessing that many of them would be marching right alongside us. Now a quick word from The Nation magazine. We have an amazing issue that's on the stands right now, and you can read it in its paper form or go to thenation.com slash subscribe. It's a profile of resistance issues. You got John Nichols on Rebecca Solnit, Collier Meyerson on the great Claudia Rankin, George Zornick on Carmen Yulin Cruz, who people may know as the mayor of San Juan, uh, Joshua Holland on Andy Slavitt, who knows more about health care and the Affordable Care Act. And anybody i know and me dave ziron who wrote a piece about colin kaepernick so please everybody out there check out the most recent issue of the nation and the resistance profiles rather than just look back on trump in 2017 we chose to look back on those resisting trumpism you really should support it go to the nation.com slash subscribe and now back to the podcast Now it's time for the part of the show we call the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award, to me, is Baltimore-based, and it couldn't go to anybody else. It goes to former NFL linebacker and Penn State University All-American Aaron Mabin. Aaron Maben is 29 years old. He's no longer a football player. He is a teacher in Baltimore City public schools. He's an elementary school teacher. And Aaron Mabin... Did something that could not have more value in this media age where every day is about Trump and scandal and scandal and Trump, and we're fed that diet. McDonald's-based diet, you could argue, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Aaron Maben this week reminded us that there is a world of injustice taking place uh, within an hour's drive of the White House, and that injustice goes well beyond and is frankly far more important than the palace intrigue we get from Pennsylvania Avenue. Aaron Maben posted footage of he and his students at Henson Elementary School in Baltimore huddled up in their winter coats... Because during this bomb cyclone of freezing weather, uh, Baltimore City schools were opened and they weren't heated. So all the students were huddled together, black and brown students, um, freezing while Aaron Mabin spoke to those students. And Aaron Mabin, um, in addition to speaking out against this injustice, put up a GoFundMe page to actually raise money to purchase roughly 660 space heaters. And he wrote... Baltimore City Public Schools are currently operating with an inadequate heating system. Students are still required to attend classes that are freezing and expected to wear their coats to keep them warm. How can you teach a child in these conditions? Now, the goal for this GoFundMe page was $20,000, and at the last time that I checked, the morning that we're doing this podcast, uh, was almost $50,000. But it's not about the money. It's about the awareness that Aaron Maben was raising. And it's both a tragedy to me that this story would not have gotten national attention without there being a former NFL linebacker at the heart of it, but it's also a reminder— about the power of sports, the power of the platform, and the power of the sports media, which did a terrific job of disseminating this story. And it's also believed, based on my own contacts, who I've spoken to in Baltimore, who work in the public school system, that the reason why they shut down the schools the next day was because of Aaron Maben and the publicity that he brought to this. So Just Stand Up Award, without question, goes to Aaron Maben. And now the Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the U.S. Olympic Committee and USA Gymnastics, who put out this week a legal document saying they had no legal duty to protect USA gymnasts from the molester, sexual assaulter Larry Nasser, formerly Dr. Larry Nasser, whose criminal conduct has sparked widespread scandal as hundreds of people in the USA Gymnastics program have come forward to speak about his record of assault, including Olympians like Michaela Maroney and Gabrielle Douglas. In addition, USA Gymnastics has said that they had no legal duty to warn Michigan State, where, quote-unquote, Dr. Nasser was working at that time. And I really want to echo the words of three-time gold medalist Nancy Hogshead, who's been a guest on this show and has spoken about this issue on this show. She's also an attorney, and I just want to echo her words. She wrote, The Olympic Committee has taken the path that they don't owe a legal duty that extends out there to the kids, that it's the club's job, it's the police's job, the parents' job, it's somebody else's job, but it's not theirs. End quote. I agree with Nancy Ogshead's belief that this is extreme garbage, it's cowardice, it's disgusting, and it's frankly criminal. I mean, there are states in this country where if you know that abuse is taking place of a child and you do not tell the police that you go to prison for not coming forward, that not every state has that law. I don't know why, but in many states that is the law. And I got to tell you that if I am from a state where it is the law that you have a duty to inform other actors if a child is endangered, I'm suing. I'm going after USA Gymnastics. This is beneath contempt. So USA Gymnastics, sit your ass down. Now it's time for the part of the show that we do every week that we call Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest news regarding blackballed or whiteballed uh, NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. The issue this week to me is that the NFL playoffs are starting, and there are several teams that I think had playoff talent that were legitimately better than some of the teams that are in the playoffs this year. And they're on the outside looking in. And they are because the teams chose to tank. They chose to lose rather than sign Colin Kaepernick. And that's what's so gobsmacking to me is that these teams that say that they're built on the basis of a meritocracy and if you're good, you get to play. And these teams that take millions and millions of dollars in public funds partially because they say that they'll fill the stands and then people can go to uh, restaurants, bars, and all the rest of it. These teams chose to lose rather than fight for the playoffs they chose to put people behind center at the most important position in sports quarterback uh, in terms of determining whether a team is successful or not they put people behind there who were not ready to play and they did so because Colin Kaepernick's social conscious was too much for them and this is who I'm looking at most directly I'm looking at the Green Bay Packers, who chose to go 3-8 and eight with Brett Hundley as quarterback, even though he was so overmatched. And one of those three victories, by the way, from Brett Hundley was against the Cleveland Browns in overtime, a Browns team that went 0-16. Brett Hundley was also shut out twice. There are very few shutouts in the National Football League. I'm looking at the Houston Texans, who have an amazing defense, and after their quarterback Deshaun Watson went down, they chose to go with Tom Savage and other various flotsam and jetsam under center. And they were absolutely terrible. I believe they won one game after uh, Watson's injury for the rest of the season. Ended the year, I believe, 5-11. and 11. I'm looking at the Denver Broncos, who wasted a year of Von Miller's prime, one of the great defensive players in the sport, because they thought it would be a better idea. Or John Elway, a person who wrote on Denver Broncos' stationery a letter of support for Neil Gorsuch to become a Supreme Court justice. They thought it was a better idea to have people like Trevor Simeon and Paxton Lynch under center, they went 5-11. and 11. They even re-signed Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler. Brock Osweiler had three jobs this year. Denver, Cleveland, Denver. And Colin Kaepernick had zero. I'm looking at the Arizona Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals chose to put Blaine Gabbert, who was beaten by Colin Kaepernick for a job in San Francisco last year, and Drew Stanton. Drew Stanton. Under center, rather than try to make the playoffs. And what's so crazy about this to me is that now the general manager, who's widely respected on Green Bay, Ted Thompson, has been fired because the team looked like they went backwards this year. Bruce Arians, after 42 years of coaching, retired. A longtime defensive coordinator, Dom Capers, fired. So you're talking about people who literally chose unemployment. They chose racism. Over their own economic self-interest and their own team's ability to make it in the playoffs. So here's what I think Colin Kaepernick and his lawyer Mark Garago should do as they do their collusion lawsuit against the National Football League. Now I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, but I really do believe that they should just show footage of these teams from the 2017 season. And then just show the basic stats of Colin Kaepernick from 2016. 16 touchdowns, 4 picks, a 91 quarterback rating. And then ask the question, why could this person forget about a job, even get an invite to try out? Well, thanks to everybody for listening this week. Remember, you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash edge pod. Every patron we have makes a huge difference, and it's going to allow us to do much better work on this show. Please, please go and consider supporting the podcast. And next week, we're going to do a big old honor roll of all the folks who have supported us and talk about what we're going to do with the support that we're getting. We're going to have a whole section on that next week at the end, and I'm really excited about that. Also, I want to thank The Nation Magazine, the sponsor of this podcast. Thank you so much to my producers, Dan Baker and Dangerous Dave Tigaboo. Also... I want to just say to everybody out there, you can always contact me, Dave Zirin, on Twitter at Edge of Sports or at edgesports at gmail.com. If you have your own ideas of who should get the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, always email me. Sometimes the best suggestions come from you, the Edge of Sports audience, and I love reading them out on the podcast. Um, and also, don't forget, you can always listen to back episodes at EdgeofSportsPodcast.com. Also, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. We are back on Stitcher after a month of bullshit. Please, everybody. All that stuff makes a big difference, especially when you rate the show, write a review of the show. All of that helps us do what we do. For everybody out there, hey, we made it to 2018. Let's keep on pushing. Stay frosty in this cold weather, in this polar vortex of bomb cyclones. We are out of here. Peace.